Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Woo. I was born in Bangladesh, so I was born in Dhaka. I spent the first 10 years of my life there. I moved here when I was 10. I'm um, 36 now. I haven't been back since. Wow, really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so like Why is, have your parents have gone back? I, uh, my parents have, uh, my mom has gone back. My dad hasn't. Uh, I've gone to Indonesia. I've gone to Singapore. I've been all over Asia. I just haven't been back to Bangladesh yet. And it's one of those things where, you know, you, you don't do something for long enough. And then it kind of now is like a big thing to go back. And I'm like, well, I wanted to be good when I go. So it just hasn't happened yet. Do you have family there? I do have family there, yeah. But you, you talk to them on the phone? We just... Yeah, well, like FaceTime okay. or we're, we're on Messenger. Uh, but yeah, I haven't seen them. We're connected on Facebook. Like I haven't seen them in 20, 26 years, yeah. I haven't okay. been back there. I, I want to go. I think I'm going to go next year. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I, I love going back. The city, not, not as much, but the countryside is beautiful. You know, you, you've been to, you talked about uh, Bali and uh, probably not anywhere close to Bali, but this still the countryside of Islanders, I feel like is... Some of the beautiful, most beautiful places uh, I've been to. I, I hear Cox Bazaar. Is, Cox Bazaar is nice. Longest yeah. beach in the world. It's not the nicest beach. Like people will say, it's, it's a really. It's not the nicest beach, but it's <laughs> it's it's a nice beach. Yeah. It's not. You know. It's not. It'll, it won't compare to Bali. I, I want to go back. Like I'm planning on going back, and I've always wanted to go back. But what really drove it now is I I'm, I'm into startups. I'm into tech, and now there's like a lot of tech startups starting up in there Bangladesh. Are. And it's exciting, and I'm like, I just want to go there and hang out. So you weren't always in startups. You used to work for companies, right? So what made you uh, t make the transition to startups? Um, well, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. Okay. My dad was an entrepreneur. Uh, he started. He moved here when he was 40 with two kids and started a business, which I, like is insane to me. Um, and so I knew at an early age I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I took my first foray into entrepreneurship. Um, it was my first company. It was in college. And it was called MyPimp, uh, Personal Information Management Portal. Like, yeah. like uh, we rebranded later. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, so we ended up selling that company. And I, it happened really quickly. And then I ended up getting a job. And I entered the workforce. And I always knew I wanted to build a company. But I didn't. It takes a lot of courage to do it. And the first time was easy because if we were in college, we we're going to go do it. And I was lucky enough to be around people that also wanted to start companies. Um, and so I worked, then I, w I ended up working at the company that bought us. And then I got recruited into a hedge fund called Bridgewater. I worked at Bridgewater. And then finally, after like three and a half years of Bridgewater, I was like, I, it's now or never. I was 28. And it was one of those, like, I can keep, like, things were good. I loved the job. I had like the cool sports car, you know, like. Everything's good, but there's still something missing. Like you wake up on a Sunday and like you're thinking about money. You're like, you're not looking forward to it at all, even though everything should be great. And that's when I knew I, I needed to go start a company. And I quit and I started my company, Tout So it's interesting because you said that you sold your first company. So I would think that would, that would mean that, oh, wow, I was really successful with my first company and I sold it. So it was successful. So maybe I would start something on something again, but the, but the, you went to, you went into corporate. So any reason for that? Why you didn't? follow uh, your, the example that you had that was a success and do it again? The thing is that it takes time to come up with an idea. And one of the things you learn, like even now, like I sold my last company, the second one, uh, and then the company that bought mine, we just sold that one too. And like to, you, the more iterations you go through, you realize there's this like marination period where you really need to like think about the idea and what it is and you just got to like kind of bumble in it. And one of the best ways to do that is while you're working for someone else. Interesting. I get and that. you're learning. And that's what I, like I, I looked at my twenties and I looked at it like you, I was either getting paid to learn uh, at a job or I was making mistakes and building companies and uh, learning from that. So it was different ways of learning and growing. Wow. So you were with Bridgewater, which uh, people that are in finance know about Bridgewater and they have this culture that is world famous and the CEO, Ray Dalio, has this sort of eccentric uh, personality and reputation where he's <laughs> like all about brutal honesty and things like that. So you worked there for three years. How was that like? Yeah, it was three and a half years. Um, I joined Bridgewater when we were pro it was 2007, a few hundred people. Uh, 
I got a printed wire bound version of his principles. principles yeah. yeah. It was like the employee handbook basically at wow. that time. And, yeah. um, if you re- like, if you read the book, he talks a lot about his core principles. He talks about having each person having a set of strengths and weaknesses and codifying into, into a baseball card. I worked on like the first version of the baseball cards. Wow. Like Did you keep in touch with him? Uh, no, I don't think he'd remember me. <laughs> we're not, we're not BFFs so at so all. Just so people know, Bridgewater is the biggest hedge fund in the world, yeah. right? By assets under management. Uh, it is the largest. Which is insane. Yeah. And they're like in this, like the middle of the, in the woods in Connecticut somewhere. Yep. Yep. It was it, it, literally in Westport, Connecticut in a very residential neighborhood. You turn into this private road and wow. it takes you down this creek and wow. then there's two buildings in the middle of the forest and that's where I worked for wow. three and a half years. So one of the things we talked about earlier is... Uh, By the way, you've been promising me chow for an hour. <laughs> we're, we're, t- we're taking breaks, making chow. We're like two uncles making Bengali chow. And, uh, and uh, I promise I'll get you chow. <laughs> so one of the things you talk about is uh, you know, being an entrepreneur. A lot of it is, is difficult finding an idea. right? Yeah. So tell, uh, tell us about your, uh, how you come up, came up with uh, your first startup and then, and then the next. Yeah, I, I mean... The specific story of how I came up with the startups are less important. The process, like if you're looking to start a company is, and I'll, I'll, I can go to the specific, yeah. you got to like bumble around a little bit and you got to just like kind of sit in the problem space. Chances are you're going to go solve a problem that you have a whole number of hours of domain knowledge in. That's what you're more, most likely to be successful in, especially when it comes to software. Um, now, if you're like trying to create the next Snapchat, maybe you, don't, you already have 10,000 hours of domain knowledge in being a human and cons- consumer behavior, so you might do that. But for business stuff, that's what I specialize in. That's where I think there's a lot of opportunity. It's stuff you're already in. So that boring job that you might be in or I was in, that's what gave me the fuel to think about the ideas that I created for my company. So what was the job that you were in in Bridge- Bridgewater? Um, so Bridgewater, I was in a job where I created software for the traders. So Bridgewater was about $180 billion in assets under management. This is all public information, at least from that time. It's dated anyway. Uh, $180 billion. They only had like 12 execution traders. That's it. And so to act, what we needed to do was create software that told these traders specifically what to do and optimize that workflow as much as possible and enter that into the markets. Mm. And so I created software for that. And what ended up being really interesting was the types of solutions that we came up with uh, to help the traders execute faster was similar to the types of solutions I created in my company. And instead of traders, it was salespeople. But ultimately, the core principle was the same. It was salespeople entering into a market to have communications. So a lot of things, like I, my brain patterns like matched up to like, oh, salespeople could use this too. Mm. And we went broader with that idea. And that's, that's how I came up with the idea. Now, the path to get there, complete mess. Like it was similar to like, like when I left the job, I'm like, I don't want to do anything close to this. I want to go solve some big problem. It's going to be a billion dollar idea. So I experimented with other stuff. For a year, I tried a bunch of other stuff. And While you were at Bridgewater or on uh, after after yeah Bridgewater? I was bumbling around with it yeah um, in fact like when I left Bridgewater shortly after like two months in I created Tout which was the company that I ended up building out uh, but I ignored it for the for three months after that because I was like I don't know if this is a big enough idea I wanted to create some crazy thing yeah. that supposedly a bunch of people but ultimately it ended up being the simple thing to solve for a very specific group of people that did really well. And that's been the case for every company I've ever been part of. Yeah. So I think it takes a little bit of like bumbling around, a little bit of idleness, a little bit of like just trying a bunch of different ideas and experimenting to really get to a company. It's never that like I have this brilliant plan and it's perfectly modeled in a spreadsheet. It is messy. You hear that a lot. I mean, everybody uses Facebook as an example, but that his whole goal was to, I mean, to build a, to rate, it started as like a rating thing, right? Rating website to rate people's faces and then it just snowballed from there. Yeah. I think, I think there's always like a core principle that stays true. Like for me, I always wanted to help people communicate better. Like that was, the, that's the kind of software I like to build. My first company was a calendaring software, but it allowed groups of people to organize on their calendar. My second company, Tout, was uh, helped salespeople communicate with their customers and prospects more effectively. So I think there's always a common thread um, that helps 
define the problem space you're in and that's something you're passionate about and that helps you kind of stay grounded instead of trying going all over the place and you also talked about identifying inefficiencies and that's something that drives you crazy and helps you help to identify uh, yeah that's what's always driven me like the only reason i create soft like i got into software and creating software um like a i was a nerd i still am but b uh, i just hated things that were repetitive that were pointless that were inefficient and like i like to say every spreadsheet in a large organization is potential for a software company that could like completely change the workflow <laughs> that's hilarious I, I, I you would go crazy if you see some of the stuff that we do uh, at my work um i'm always trying to look for things but you know, it's so much so bureaucratic and i you know i was just thinking about it when you work for a large company it's so difficult to implement some of these solutions internally because it's so large and bureaucratic so that's why so maybe having an idea and then taking it outside is the best way to do it right yeah that's the thing like you asked me earlier like if i always knew i wanted to be an entrepreneur like if i'm so an entrepreneur why do i get a job like why do i work at bridgewater why do i work at plaxo and the the reality and you know you can i didn't know this at the time i just intrinsically knew i wanted to go learn how larger companies work but the biggest thing I got out of that was I walked out of there with 50 billion ideas of things to solve. And the best part of that is once you get um, a product that you're working on, the people that you worked with could be your first customers. Like I will never forget the day we had this little feed, right? Uh, with Tout App, every single time someone swiped a credit card, uh, I would get a text message and it would make a cash register noise. And yeah. it makes like a cha-ching noise. It's called Mr. Moneybags. And it would tell me that someone just paid money and it was the best feeling ever because you switch from being paid for a job, trading time, to like you're sleeping and people are swiping credit cards and using your product. Oh, amazing feeling. Amazing. I'll never forget the moment. Like I look, and I always looked at it when whatever went cha-ching. I look at it, it was someone from Bridgewater. Like someone from Bridgewater was following what I was building and they needed it for their recruiting and they bought, they bought Tout. Wow. They purchased a subscription. It was like the craziest feeling. But you started to realize that time you spend in the job gives you domain knowledge into a space that helps you build a company. And that also helps you get your first customers, which is super powerful. And get networks. And you can, when you're building a team, you can recruit from people you used to work with. Mm-hmm. All of that starts to come into play, which is very powerful. So what about your parents? I'm curious. So you left a stable job, large, incredibly reputable company. What were your parents' reaction to doing, leaving that? I know your dad was an entrepreneur, so he may have been. What were their thoughts about that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've always had very supportive parents. They've, they've never been like, don't do it. Um, I think my dad knew that entrepreneurship runs in the blood a little bit. But at the same time, there was tremendous amounts of opposition. Mm. Not like protest, not like you, I forbid you or anything. But they're like, this is a terrible idea. Mm. Uh, like I, my first company, um, we started over a summer between junior year and senior year of college. And I had an internship with GE. Locked. So, um, so, I, I, so I had this internship with GE. And it's like locked and loaded. They have an apartment ready, and that I'm supposed to go to. And, and you know, GE never operates in a city center; it's always outside. So I'm supposed to go to Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, uh, for GE Water and Process Technologies. And literally the day before, I called them, and I emailed them, and I'm like, "Hey, I'm not going to be coming in." And I then had to sit my parents down and tell them, "Like, hey, I'm starting a company with my friends, so I'm not going to be going into this internship." And they're, and they're like, what's it called? And I'm like, it's called My Pimp. <laughs> what year was this? This was uh, 2005. Okay, did they say anything about 50 Cent? Did they say anything? <laughs> they, said, they said nothing. They, 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 they were just appalled. They're like, they understand GE. And on the, like, it's not even a legitimate sounding startup name. It's just My Pimp. But like, that was the domain we had. And, yeah, that's so funny. And so even though my... My dad is an entrepreneur, even though they understand. I think like parents mean well and they really want you to be safe. And so their algorithm on whenever they say this is a good idea versus a bad idea is all about is this going to keep him safe or not? So like, gee, he's so safe. Why would you not do that? What is this thing you're doing? Even though it was entrepreneurial. And the same thing happened when I quit Bridgewater. That was probably even more controversial. Um, Again, they wouldn't protest, but they're like, why are you doing this? You're like, you're doing so well at Bridgewater and they love you there. And why would you leave? And ultimately you just like, 
I had enough of like the the feeling where like there's got to be something more. Like I think we all go through that feeling even when we have we're quote unquote doing well in whatever we're doing. Um, you, I just had that feeling like there's got to be something more. Bridgewater is amazing. I like they treat me really well there. Love the job, but you just knew that there was something more. And so I quit Bridgewater and then started a company again. Um, and sure enough, like you know, we sold my company and I became an executive at the company that bought ours. Uh, I, I was an executive there for two years. We just sold that one to Adobe. And again, I had that same feeling because at 28, I started ToutApp. I grew it, raised venture capital, we sold it. And then Marketo, I was an executive and then we sold that. I was turning 30, so brings us to this year, I was t- turning 36. And again, I'm like, I'm an Adobe employee. And I'll, again, never forget when my parents saw the Adobe badge. And they're like, this is so great. And like, because they don't really know Marketo, which is the they company. They know Adobe, yeah. But they know Adobe. Yeah. They're like, Photoshop. We yeah. understand that. And so I think they just want the best for you. They want you to be safe. Yeah. Um, and so make, taking the plunge was always a difficult decision, both for myself and for everyone that really cared about me. Because it is taking on a certain amount of risk. Even when you have like taken the risk before and done well, it's still scary. Uh, and you just eventually learn that sometimes people are just give, telling you what to do because they just want you to be safe. But safe is not necessarily what you're looking for. Safe is not necessarily what's going to make you happy. Safe is not necessarily what's going to get you what you ultimately want. Mm. And you just have to recognize that. And, re- and that's what I did. I was like, well, the status quo can't be good. If I keep doing this, I'm going to be unhappy. So I'd rather take a risk versus just do the status quo thing. Okay. Because later on, I'm probably going to regret not taking the plunge. And that's how it planned out, panned out. So you talked about raising capital. So tell people about that. What does that mean? So I, you hear that term all the time. You know, what, what, how do you raise capital? Did you know anything about that before? Did you have connections? How did, how did you even find out where to start? Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't have connections. Uh, I didn't have a network or anything. And this is something you often hear. Like, I had a couple of things working against me. One, I was a solo founder. Usually with tech companies, you get two founders. So you get a mm. kind of a sales type person, a marketing type person, and then you get a tech type person. It was just me. Um, and then second, like, I'm not white and didn't go to Stanford and that like it's kind of the yeah overwhelming majority of startup founders I went to school at uh, RPI it's an engineering school in upstate New York okay in Troy New York yeah uh, and so no network not quite the model that most investors look for uh, and but I I and I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to bootstrap the company or raise money but when Tout started, we got so much traction up front. We had people signing up and paying and Mr. Moneybag is going off. Um, that gave me the impetus to go talk to a lot of investors. And basically, I, I followed this rule. I don't know where I learned it, but there's this rule I learned of like always say yes. So I would just kept positioning myself in places where investors would be. Mm-hmm. And anytime any opportunity came up to meet anyone, I would just say yes. You can't say no. You can't hesitate. Just keep saying yes. And so I presented at the New York Tech Meetup here. I somehow got into wow. that and we presented on stage. I got my first, first couple of investors. I got Esther Dyson, who's like a prolific investor. And then I went to South by Southwest Interactive. I knew a lot of investors would be hanging out there. Wow. And over there, I got Josh Baer and Dave McClure as my angel, angel investors. So I kind of just like hustled basically and just kept saying yes. And it kept saying yes enough times. Um, it eventually came together. Yeah. And uh, we did a – so basically the way it works is you have, you have your company and if you raise money, you sell a portion of your company to get a certain amount of money and you set it out, sell it at a certain price and that's what they call a valuation. Okay. And so that's what we did uh, on the early days and uh, we continued to – like we ended up raising venture capital beyond the angel investments. Angels are – uh, when people are spending their own money out of a checkbook, their own money and their angels because they're spending their own money. And then you get venture capitalists uh, who are spending out of a fund. Okay. And so we did, did both. We were backed by Andreessen Horowitz, which is one of the best venture Huge. capital firms yeah. wow. in the world. Yeah. Wow. And uh, we went on to kind of grow the company from there. How did you get introduced to them? Uh, Andreessen Horowitz? Yeah. Um, one of our angel investors 
uh, introduced us into the partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Wow. And the two of them were co-founders uh, at, um, at an email company. That's amazing. And so I got introduced and you got pulled in and <laughs> you got to be in a room with Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. And these guys, like this part's interesting because their pitch meetings, particularly for Andreessen Horowitz, always start with what's the founder's background. Uh, and so <laughs> I'll never forget this. This is our main pitch meeting. Like we went through the gauntlet and you want to now you have to convince the whole partnership. This is what they call the Monday morning meeting. Like the, you have to convince the whole partnership that they all have to buy into the investment. Uh, and Ben Horowitz is like, so TK, uh, where, where are you from? <laughs> I'm like, well, I was born in Dhaka, Bangladesh. <laughs> and he's just like, that's got to be hard. <laughs> but like they want the history. They want to know where you're yeah. from and yeah, yeah. they want to know if you've got the grit. And yeah, yeah. They do that on Shark. I mean, nothing compared to what, what, what you're going through. I'm, they I'm, do sure, that they, shark I'm sure they do that too, always, yeah. You know, the, the sharks are always asking them, like, where you're from, what is with your background. It's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, so you talk about you, you're considering bootstrapping it. But one of the benefits, I would think, with the angels and, and the VC is that they also come with all this expertise, but also contacts that also help you. And they have a vested interest, so they want you to do well. So they're also helping you to do that. Whereas if you bootstrapped, it would, you wouldn't have that. Yeah. Well, I think that that's 100% true. I think that when you bring on professional investors... They are literally professionally in the game to help you succeed. Now, is that always true? It's not always true, but some of them are. Some of them can actually add value. Some of them can't. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we were very fortunate. We had very amazing investors that helped us in, through the good times, the bad times, the terrible times, and the pretty good times. We went through it all, and we were fortunate enough to have investors that really helped us. I think one of the, the the thing to realize, though, is not every business is a venture scale business. Uh, and I think this is something that's starting to become even more clear now that you have WeWork and you have Uber, companies that just like can't turn a profit. Uh, I think you're starting to see like, A, the street wants you to build a company that is profitable versus just growing. And so the, the rules of the game is slightly changing. But also at the same time, um, the cost of building a, a company is lower than ever. Mm. Uh, you don't have to buy servers anymore. You can hook up with a person in India or Bangladesh and help you code it for a fraction of the price. Yeah. It's a, a global infrastructure is coming online where I think that in the next 10 years, you don't have to raise money. There should be a way for you to build a product and deploy a product and start to have Mr. Moneybags go off. Uh, even before you have to raise money. Okay. And, I, and I think that what's going to start to happen is it's going to become evident that not every business is a venture scale business. Mm. Like there's a certain type of business that is good for venture. It requires a lot of cash, uh, but you don't need that. So you kind of have to figure out if that's right for you or not. And what's great is to answer your actual question is even as a bootstrapper, if you're just starting out now, there's more support now than ever, mm. even if you're not getting investors. There's still plenty of communities and blogs and YouTube videos and courses and boot camps that are helping the bootstrap entrepreneur actually succeed as well. Okay. Did you ever feel that any of the investors were trying to take your company in a direction that maybe you didn't foresee or want to take? No, I don't think so. I think we were very aligned. Uh, We were very aligned in that we're going to go really hard. We're going to push to grow really fast. And if that doesn't work, we can always shrink back and then we can course correct and we can figure it out from there. Okay. And the whole point of the venture model, like, you know, you think about venture capital as an asset class. It's a very small percentage compared to all other asset allocations. Venture capital firms raise money from uh, endowments, like the same people that have a lot of cash, uh, pension funds, uh, high net worth individuals. But they always allocate a very small amount to venture capital. The reason to do that is, is because it's very high risk and very high reward. And the only way you can truly go after really high reward is if you take a lot of risks. So we're all aligned in that we want to try and build a very large company, go after a really large space and really push it hard uh, and then figure it out from there. Now, that was the playbook that we applied in 2015. But I think that playbook will slightly change now because the market has dictated they want slightly different types of companies. Mm. Uh, and so it's an evolving landscape on how you build 
both bootstrap startups and venture back startups. Mm. What do you think about the what's going on with WeWork? You know what's crazy because uh, when I started Tout, I was in the first WeWork building. Oh wow! And the WeWork founder Adam Newman got me my first angel investor. Wow! Like literally, I gave him a demo of Tout, and he got on the cell phone halfway through the demo, and he's like, "Hey, my friend would like to meet you." And I'm like, cool, I'd love an introduction. And he's like, no, no, I, like, I need you to go over to him right now. And what? literally, I walked down Lafayette Street, Street towards this diamond store, went up into the office, and this dude was there. And it, uh, we became amazing. We invested. We became amazing friends. In fact, I met with him today. Like, we were looking Adam at another. Newman? What's that? Adam Newman? Uh, no, oh, the, the guy he introduced okay. me to. Uh, Adam Newman and I are no longer friends. <laughs> like, like, he's a great guy. I yeah, actually yeah, think yeah. he's a great guy. I don't yeah. know. What happened with WeWork? Yeah, I think that, um, I think that what they've built is incredible. Of course, um, I think that it's totally the future. Um, like I'm a member of WeWork. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm also a member of Equinox. Okay. And no matter what city I drop into, whatever major city, I'm able to walk in, and there's a friendly face that's going to hook me up with a conference room or a desk, or there's a friendly face that'll hook me up with a gym and a and a locker and a place to work out and shower and change and everything. They have an Equinox in Shanghai? Uh, I don't know. They might. Interesting. Um, they, they're definitely global. I don't know if they're in China or not. Yeah, I, and I, what you just said. I, and I, that's when the future. I, when, I was in, when I was in Shanghai, I went to a, a number of uh, WeWorks and I loved it. Great customer service. Standard customer service. Um, I mean, you know everything will work. Yeah. Yeah, I, I loved it. It's, so, but one thing about WeWork and uh, going back to what you were saying about uh, funding, so sometimes I, and I don't know anything about startups. This is just me just looking at it from the outside. If, if a concept or a, a company doesn't work, right, um, the market will tell you. But since in the case of WeWork or other companies that have so much money behind them from SoftBank for in WeWork's case, the markets, even if they're losing money, it's fine because they have all this money coming in from SoftBank. So in that case, the market, even if the market's telling them it's not working, it's fine because they have all this money coming in. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, one thing you got to realize is, I don't know what the latest number is, but there's something like $12 trillion collecting negative interest. Oh, wow. Right? Like, and, and like, I might be wrong on that exact number, but the last time I had this conversation, that was a number. Like, literally $12 trillion, we don't know what to do with it, and we have to pay someone to actually do something with it. Okay? And so you take, think about $12 trillion dollars. And you compare that to the hundred billion dollar SoftBank fund, SoftBank fund. It's nothing. And you think about the out of the hundred billion dollars, the seventy billion that WeWork was valued at, and the the like. You start to think about, and 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 as human beings, we don't know how to really process a, a million, a, a billion, and a trillion. Like it's not linear. It's just like it's exponential. It's so it's twelve trillion. So when you think about that, where money doesn't like, there's plenty of money. Like not in my pocket, in your pocket. There's just plenty of money on planet Earth. And there's these people that are like, we got to allocate this money. Otherwise, we have to pay some guy to, and then it goes down in value. You start to think about from that context mm. the bets that we take to try and get autonomous cars, the bets that we take yeah. to get an Uber showing up to you within seconds when you hit a button on your phone yeah. and an office, no matter what city you walk into, you're kind of like, that should exist yeah. and let's go figure out how to do that. Yeah. Now, is there a better way to run that business? Sure. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the pattern of how that's worked, to create something as crazy like that, you look at what Elon Musk is doing with trying to get to Mars Amazing. and electric cars. The first 10 years almost is always like a birthing process. It's difficult, messy, and just painful. Yeah. And then you start to optimize the business. Yeah. And so in a way, I think that can we do this more gracefully where we transition a company from the R&D stage to an operational profitable stage? I think that's going to start to happen. Mm. But from a grand scheme of things, from a planet Earth, amount of money collecting negative interest mm. being deployed to like, let's just make everything work better. Yeah. Um, when you look at it from that frame of view, it like makes a ton of sense. You're like, why not? This is chump change. Like, yeah, it is chump change. <laughs> like it, yeah. from that scale. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So, what are you doing now? You're you're not with Adobe anymore, right? I'm not. I, I left Adobe uh, January of this year. 
your parents had a heart attack. Because, right? <laughs> Fortunately, no real heart attacks, but they were like, I think I think they gave me a little bit more slack this time. Okay. Yeah. So they were this time they were like, so are you gonna like get married? I'm single. Yeah. So they're like, are you gonna get married now? And my your younger brother's married. My younger brother's married. Yeah. So. Um, my younger brother, yeah, so I'm single. So they're kind of like, are you going to like date now or you're going to like, you know, get married, settle down? Married. So yeah, no heart attacks. They are wondering if I'm going to, you know, get married and settle down and stuff. I, I decided that this year was like a little bit of a sabbatical year. And so I published a book uh, to kind of take everything I've learned around. I've always been into personal development. Um, I got into building more companies because I was unhappy in the job that I was in. And then I, I learned a ton in building a company. And, and, and so I published a book called um, How to Punch the Sunday Jitters in the Face. So it's like Sunday afternoon, you get a little pit in your stomach. And uh, what you call the Sunday scaries, the Sunday jitters, or the Monday morning dread, or like the what am I even doing with my life. Um, that's what the book is about. It helps you practice this method that I've used for the last 10 years that helps you kind of get more aligned as you go into the work week and helps you start to plan out what you want out of your life over the next year and then a vision for yourself over the next five years. Uh, this is stuff that helped me get a lot more focused and go accomplish things. Mm -hmm. And so I, 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 so I put the book out there and I'm really fortunate. We sold about four thousand copies so far. Wow! Uh, on Amazon, that's amazing. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Uh, apparently, a lot of people have Sunday jitters and Sunday yeah, scaries. Of course. So, so that's been really cool. Of course, it's so true. Yeah. And and being prepared uh, gets rid of it. So I, I'm sure preparation is is one of those things. Because yeah, I, I'll go into Sunday evenings and I'm just like, oh man, I'm looking at my schedule and I'm like, oh, this meeting, I don't know if I'm ready. This meeting, I'm from, I don't know if I'm ready. So I'm definitely looking forward to. I've re I've watched some of your. YouTube videos about the book and yeah, I, 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 I definitely found value in them. I think it's really interesting. What would, Thanks, would you, would you be offended if somebody said you were the brown Gary V? Would you be offended by that? <laughs> I don't know. I think Gary's awesome. He's awesome. He's uh, right? one of his, one of my so, heroes. Yeah. yeah. He's so much energy. I love it. Yeah. No, yeah I, love I like that. Gary a lot. And I, I, I know like I don't, you shouldn't, um, like I don't want to, I don't, uh, want to, uh, I definitely, uh, have, I guess with electronic mentor, I was just, E-mentors, people that I look to, like Gary Vee is one of them. Yeah. And yeah, I just get so much energy. You see, you watch people and you, you, you see what they're doing and and uh, you just definitely get energy for them. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I myself, like Gary was, uh, Gary Vee was um, a big inspiration for me. Um, so was uh, like Tony Robbins. I'm, I'm, really? I, I like him a lot. Yeah. Uh, Jim Rohn, he's the guy that taught Tony Robbins. I follow his stuff a lot. Okay. And so there's, there's a whole set of things that are not taught in school. Uh, like you think about goal setting, time management, uh, you think about stuff like meditation or uh, practicing gratitude. Like these are not taught in school. Mm -hmm. And you have to really seek it out yourself to go get it. Mm -hmm. But then also at the same time, um, you know, things like mental health and things like uh, managing your emotions and figuring out what you want out of life. It feels almost unapproachable to a lot of people. Like it's too frou-frou and too many feelings. It feels like you got to put on some fancy yoga pants or something to do it. So the big thing I wanted to do was make it approachable for people. Mm -hmm. And so this whole Unstoppable Sunday method, it's part planning, but it's really what, like, what we almost trick you to do is we help you on a Sunday or a Monday morning, wherever, whenever is convenient for you, we help you actually practice gratitude. We help you think about like, all right, before you start worrying about Monday, think about last Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, mm -hmm. Thursday, like what good things happen? What you already forgot about it. Yeah. And we teach you to do that. Then we have you change like, you don't have to fix anything, but just acknowledge how you're feeling now. Mm -hmm. You don't have to like, and so often on a Sunday, like we think about, Oh, I, this is bothering me, so I got to go do this, this, and you're like going down this rabbit hole. All, but what we teach you to do is don't have to fix anything, just acknowledge it, write it down. Mm. And then once you've done that, then we say, all right, cool, now look at tomorrow. Like, what are you excited about? And what are you looking forward to? And if you're doing this again a week from now, what are your three non-negotiables? So we teach you, like in this 30-minute thing, which is super fun with music blaring, uh, and if you want to try it, you can go to getunstoppable.com. Like literally, there's a self-guided video where I 
like talk to you. Mm-hmm. Um, in that 30 minute period, we get you to trick you to practice gratitude, acknowledge your feelings, and then create a plan. And then you come out of it much more centered. Mm. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it more approachable for people. And the secret world domination goal here, the, what I really, like I do the YouTube and everything is, I just really want more people to start companies. Uh, like I want more people to quit their jobs and start companies. Yeah, I want more. I, and specifically, I want more. I would like to see more Bengali people start companies. Because yeah. I think for uh, it's not something we're um, pushed to do by our parents. And we talked about this earlier with your parents. It's our, our parents come here and they... You know, when they go into careers that are or jobs that are stable, some you know, and they don't want us to struggle, like you said earlier. There's a goal behind there, what they push us towards. It's coming from yeah. a place of love, exactly. Yeah, totally. And I think entrepreneurship is actually was for a long time looked down upon. And but but when you talk about entrepreneurship, I think they for in their mind they're you know talking about grocery stores and yep. you know those kind of things. But the idea that we could start a company in tech or in fashion and things like that, I don't think. They realize it, and I, I guess you know, seeing people like you, um, you know, the, now they can see examples of that. Yeah, I think a lot of it is seeing more examples. Yeah. Like one of the things uh, earlier this year, uh, I threw a dinner. I, I hosted a dinner, and this was it was here in New York. I got together nine Bangladeshi CEOs. Wow. And uh, these were either they exited their company for multiple billion dollars, or they run multi million dollar companies. But there's they're through and through Bangladeshi CEOs. And man, I think that was like, that was it. <laughs> like maybe I had two more uh, in the is network. Is in the US or the... This is in the US, okay. yeah. Because uh, I, I looked really hard and that was... But it was incredible when we got together because we realized none of them knew each other, yeah. not really. And we were like, wow, this is awesome. Like it's great that we're doing this. And yeah. uh, I think we want to get the message out more. And one of the things that was so hard, it's, it, it was terrible, was... I could not find a Bangladeshi CEO uh, that was female. Mm. Like, couldn't do it. I, like, literally emailed, messaged, posted. On, like, I, I looked. I finally, like, now I, I just met one, uh, and I'm going to be doing another dinner. Uh, but, like, uh, I think that there's so many Bangladeshis out there. They're so smart. They have so much domain knowledge. They have so much context and they have, and, and I think Bangladeshi people in general have so much grit. I think that they would make incredible startup founders and there's so much opportunity now and there's enough proof points of like success uh, that you can point to. And there's real fulfillment in building companies. Yeah. And I think that's what like, what I really want to get more people to be doing. Yeah. And I think the other thing is it doesn't have to, so a lot of, obviously, uh, why entrepreneurs, they come right out of college or they quit college and they start companies uh, and I don't think that's the model that we have to follow either I think if let's say work because some of us have responsibilities I know a lot of people that take care of families and yep. have to pay the rent and there's this book called I think it's uh, the 10 money um, entrepreneur where you can do things and it talks about how you can do things while you're working on the side yep. build up your portfolio or build up this company slowly on the side and then get to a point where you've either saved up enough money or build up enough traction so you can go and, and do it. So it doesn't have to be right away, I don't think. And that's kind of the model I'm following. I'm taking a lot longer than a couple of years. I've been working for 16 years, but but that's the model I'd like to follow. Now that I'm in a financial position where I can do something, maybe I want, I'll try something. It's so true. Like, I'll give three points. Number one, the whole, like, college dropouts build companies is actually a misconception. Two of them are. <laughs> yeah. right? And that's what and, the media celebrates. Yeah, Gates and yeah. the average age of a successful startup founder is actually 45. Mm. People don't know this. Wow. Uh, and even even when you act, and so this is for the young kids that are listening, like this is not by any means like leave college and start a company. In fact, if you can finish your degree, you'll be that much stronger. But here's one more thing to consider. Every single person that they point to that dropped out of college, they met their co-founders, their team in college. Yeah. Yeah. Like where they meet those guys, where they talk, like that's what they did. So college is the best place if you're young to actually go and do it. Yeah. The second thing is um, no one, like I have a video on this on my YouTube channel. You should not quit your job cold turkey. So even before I left Bridgewater, I experimented with a whole lot of different ideas. I tested a bunch of different ideas on my spare time. Like the times that you spend working on Netflix is the time that you could be building a second income stream and a second business. And once that proves itself out, 
you can start to negotiate. Like most of us are in very critical roles. What that means is if you, if you say you want to leave, it probably means you can switch to a part-time consulting role for at least three months. And then from there, you can transition into uh, working full-time on your startup while you raise money or you bootstrap or you start generating cash. So there's lots of ways to build an off-ramp for yourself. Mm. It's not just like, great, how am I going to pay my bills? I can't quit. Like There are ways to actually do it. The easiest is Netflix time. Like cut your Netflix time out and just go build a company. Just chill. You can chill though. No, you can't chill. <laughs> no. By the way, uh, we are drinking tea. How's the tea? Tea's so good. Yeah. This, I, if you if you notice me speaking faster, it's because the tea kicked in. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, I love Bengali tea, man. Um, so I know you're also in. You talked about meditation earlier. I know you're really into TM. Yeah, and I I learned about TM a few years ago because Jerry Seinfeld is a big proponent of TM. Yeah, uh, I know other there's some other uh, Ray Dalio are, is Ray Dalio. That's is, why I yeah. learned it. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so he paid for it, right? Yeah, I know Bridgewater pays for that. He did the deal. This was the first time he offered it. He was basically like, look, at that point, it, it, it still does. It costs nine hundred dollars to learn, but very recently they changed the mo- changed the pricing model. Back then it was nine hundred dollars. It was twelve hundred dollars actually. Um, now it's a pricing model where, where it's based on your income. So they want to make it a small percentage of your income, uh, of your monthly income. So it's like an, still an investment. The reason it works, it, it, first of all, like I just this is my tenth year celebrating TM, and it like it is. If there's one life hack, one pro tip, if there's one thing aside from working hard, the second tip would be go learn TM, transcendental meditation. And so the deal that Ray did was. Uh, it costs 900 something dollars because they got a group discount rate. I will pay for half and you have to pay for half. And if you finish the program and you stick to it, I will reimburse you your half. Amazing. And he did that and that's when I learned TM and it, 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 it's been life changing. Well, how would you describe how TM is different from other meditation techniques? Um, what, so you go through, you get matched up with a teacher and you go through a three-day, it's an hour each for three days, uh, orientation session. And then you do a ritual and you get a mantra. And when you are meditating, the things that they teach you and program you to understand on what to do with your mind plays back every single time you meditate. And that's why it's different than just sitting in a corner and using an app. That's why it's like 10 times more effective. And the difference is, um, you, you ever watched the movie, The Matrix? Yeah. So uh, in The Matrix, Neo, in the beginning, he basically starts to learn that he can dodge bullets. So he can kind of like go backwards. So if you just start with simple meditation, you just headspace or something like that. I have. Uh, yeah, if you do that, you start to learn how to dodge bullets. A bunch of stuff comes your way. You kind of know how to dodge them. You remember by the end of the movie in The Matrix, what Neo learns is he can just put his hand up and stop all the bullets. He can look sideways and pick the one bullet that matters the most and the rest of them fall away. That's TM and that's the difference. So if you do nothing, the bullets are going to hit you and you just like get hit by emotions and all kinds of things coming your way and you get paralyzed and you feel anxiety. If you practice even the basic amount of meditation, like headspace, you learn how to dodge some bullets. Mm-hmm. You, if you do TM and you commit to it, and I've been doing it for 10 years, like I've been in crazy, crazy crisis situations. Like you, you basically learn how to stop the bullets and figure out what is the most important thing to focus on. Let everything else falls, and you go back to the things that matter the most after that, after that, after that. It creates a level of discipline. It opens up a level of creativity unlike any other. Now, I don't even get paid by TM. I believe in it so much. I did the same program that Ray did at Bridgewater in my company. Mm-hmm. I went to my employees, and I said, I'll pay for half. You pay for half. If you can stick to the program, I'll reimburse you. And we actually tracked who did it and who didn't and the performance, and people that did it outperformed the people that didn't. Oh, wow. And it was incredible. Uh, and so I'm a big believer in it, and uh, you can, it's it, it's just like one of the best gifts that I've ever received in my life. How many times a day do you do it? I do it once a day. You're supposed to do it twice a day, yeah. um, and this is with most things. You make it your own so that you can sustain and you can do it consistently. So I do it consistently uh, once a day, and I skip Saturday and Sunday okay. because otherwise it gets a little too intense for me. So last month I did eight hours of meditation. Um, oh. and, uh, and, and like that it's, 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 it's insane. It's just like 20 minutes every day. It's super easy. Wow. 
Yeah, I've heard people swear by TM. I, I, and I've tried meditation, honestly. I haven't been successful at it. And I've used Headspace and I've used... But the concept, the idea that I have to use an app to meditate frustrates me. <laughs> so uh, so then I so I don't do it as much. But I... Yeah, I, I know... I, I, but I, but I, I, yeah, I've read a lot about TM, and I definitely want to, uh, I definitely want to get into it. But you know, at the same time, I do feel like I'm not a religious person. But I, people talk about you know people that pray five times a day, things like that. I feel like that's a form of meditation. Like of when you're like praying five times, when you're praying and you're like in the zone and, and you're reciting and you're kind of away from you. That's a form of meditation. So I don't pray, but I feel like whenever I do pray, I feel like I do feel like similar to what people say after meditation. I feel like that's a form of meditation. Yeah, I think so. Too. I mean, look, what is religion? I think religion is basically a form of best practices. Yeah. So you go to the most crunchy granola person out there. They will tell you to eat clean food, practice yoga and meditate. Yeah. Which is yeah. pretty much the same thing as praying five times a day and not eating pork yeah. and alcohol. Yeah, exactly. Like that's basically what it, like it's the yeah. same principles. It's yeah. just implemented in a different way. Yeah. I think what I learned in my life is you got to find a way to make it your own and what makes you feel good. Because yeah. if it feels like a chore, you're not going to do it. You're not going to stick to it. It's not going to be fun. And it can be fun. Like if you love yoga, go do yoga. If you like praying, go do praying. It's kind of similar. If you want to practice gratitude, like go practice gratitude or you can go pray, which is also a form of practicing gratitude. Thank God for everything that's going great. And you set an intention. You ask for what you want, yeah. which is the same thing as setting an intention, practicing gratitude, practicing yoga. Yeah. Uh, and look, like if you believe in God, I believe in God. Um, I'm not that religious. I'm more spiritual. And if that's like if that gives you happiness then go do it like whatever works for you to make it make it where you accomplish your goals is what i say yeah. i think where it falls short is when you when it starts becoming a chore yeah right like that's when you're like oh man like i gotta go do it. it's like yeah you're already losing like you're not gonna do it well you're not gonna get value from it yeah so find the thing that there's so many different ways to live life you know and i think one of the things that i struggled with as a kid going growing up in a bangladeshi family again it's out of love is it kind of felt like there was only this one way to do it and what you realize is there's just so many different ways to do it. And what matters the most is you find your way that makes mm -hmm. the most sense for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get that. The, um, so what else do you have going on right now? I know that you're also, you have a, you're very active on social media. So how do you reconcile those two things? Cause I feel like, uh, social media and all the information that comes at you and all the, all the activity on social media adds to my level of stress yeah and i have to and i i'm not a social media person at all but because of because in new york i'm on social media <laughs> and it adds to my level of stress. so that kind of i feel like if you're meditating do they conflict and how do you reconcile being involved in both yeah um i'm very very particular about who and what i follow in my feeds it's kind of like how you are very careful about the friends that you keep. Yeah. You're, you're your average of the five friends you keep. Like you take your five friends that you spend the most time with, you're going to be their average. Guaranteed. Er, er, in terms of earning levels, in terms of accomplishment levels, all of it. And it's the same as what you put on your feed. And if you curate your feed, like that's what I really try to do. I don't follow a lot of people. I try to limit it and I constantly mute and I constantly filter and I find that if you are able to do that, then it becomes more of an advantage than a disadvantage. Yeah, you, what actually, I don't know if you saw a recent post, but uh, a nurse, her name is Ansha, she said exactly that. Yeah. Because we had an episode, our last episode actually with Ansha, she talked about mental health and she said exactly that. It's just about, you know, social media, the only way to make it healthy is, is yeah, filter it, filter it. Because there's so much out there. It's just like constant people just putting up pictures and complaining and stuff but if you just filter out what you can see that yeah i heard some stat the other day like there's 500 hours of youtube content uploaded to youtube every minute 500 hours. <laughs> wow. what do we do before youtube what do we do it's yeah but like if you flip it it's so incredible like yeah. you can go and learn anything you want on youtube right yeah. now like you yeah. want to go make bengali cha like just literally, I guarantee there's going to be three videos on it. At least. Yeah. Right? Like, multiple. Yeah. And, and like, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. So I think it's like, it's really finding a way to harness it. And I think that I still look at social media. I look at YouTube as the most incredible thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think you just got to, I think we're still learning how to use it. It's so new. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's only been around for what, 10 years. Yeah. Like, I love the, 
uh, you know, Thanksgiving just happened and people were doing these posts on social media on I'm thankful for these things, but they didn't exist 10 years ago. And that list was like an iPhone, oh, iPhone had barely come out. There was, like, there was a list of like Snapchat wasn't right. There's was a list of these things that like literally didn't exist 10 years ago. But now we look at like, how did I yeah. survive? I and that's going to change again in the next 10 years. I think yeah. we're just so new to it. Yeah. And I think we're just learning yeah. how to adapt and how to filter. And I think if you can like really aggressively filter, then it becomes a superpower. And that's how I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm conscious of whether if I'm using social media or if it's using me. Like if, I, if I'm somewhere and I have it, uh, it irks me that I'm not posting something about where I am, that I find that frustrating. So I try, I'm very conscious of that. Just knowing that, okay... Uh, I'm gonna enjoy uh, the moment that I'm in, and I'm where I am, the place that I'm in, and I don't have to post about it or anything like that because I feel like that would that frustrates me. Yeah, having that feeling, and I, I'm sure other people have that feeling. Also. I think that's one of the things that's super tough, like the whole uh, posting to show off your life type of thing. Yeah, that one even I struggle with. It's yeah. like. What do you post and what do you not post? I have two Instagram accounts. I have a private one and I have a public one. Um, the public one has like 13,000 followers or something like that. The private one has 200. And I consistently curate that. And that one is where I actually post the most actively. And but that's your family and friends. <coughs> and you want them to see what's going on. And I, 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 get, and I think that's great. You know, I have nephews. So if I want to put up pictures of my nephews where all my family can see, I love yeah. that. I think that that's for social media. I think that's the great thing about social media. But it's that feeling that you have to post something. But, but again, but you have a business too. And I don't have a business, but it's similar why I do want yeah. followers. So I do want people to have information about what's going on, what I'm doing, if I'm at an event, things like that. But, uh, but it's still, it's a struggle. It's totally a struggle. Yeah. I, I think that... The only thing I can think of that I do for myself is I ask myself, who am I doing it for? Mm. Right? Like, who, who are you really looking to impress? And what mm -hmm. you, and most people don't care. They don't really care. Mm. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Like, so the question is, like, who are you doing it for? Yeah. And I know for my Instagram, I do it for myself, that private one. Yeah. It's really, like, I love being able to scroll through it and see what I was doing a year ago. Yeah. That's the coolest thing. Is yeah. I do it for myself yeah. and, like, my, happen to, happens to be some of my closest friends follow yeah. it. And that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So... Uh, tell us about the book uh, and where people can find it. Yeah. Uh, so if you want to practice Unstoppable Sunday, go to getunstoppable.com. Um, if you want to get the book, uh, it's How to Punch the Sunday Jitters in the Face. We're available on Amazon. We're on Kindle. We can ship you a physical copy. Um, and if you want to start a company, you can email me, tk at getunstoppable.com. Wow. wow. You'll get a lot of emails. I'll, I look forward to it. Wow. And I, yeah, and I love that you're accessible. Uh, you, you know, you really responsive to us and yeah i really appreciate you coming out here uh from dc yeah thanks for the challenge wow this yeah. is great <laughs> it's the least i can do but pleasure talking to you i i don't know too many startup uh, founders that are bengali so i think it's fantastic what you're doing we definitely need more startup founders uh and maybe hopefully uh come back from shanghai and, and maybe i'll do something I'm excited we'll for your startup. Yeah. I can feel it already. <laughs> yeah. Cha. <laughs> it might be a cha startup. Cha startup. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, man. The red and green I beat is always in my heart. I do it for my people, always in my thoughts. I gotta be honest. With diamonds and pearls. Yeah, yeah. Bengali's in New York. All over the world. Uh, it's the bony show. Hey, uh, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live. From the slang we spit to the gangs we with. It doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh. I say, hey, come on. Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live. From the slang we 